Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. We have unlimited juice. <laughs> this party is going to be off of the hook. Best-selling author Josh Burnoff is today's guest on the pod. We talk about the merits of working for a large organization versus being an independent. We also explore the relationship between clarity and effective collaboration. Let's get this party started. Josh, where does this pod find you? I am here in my home office in Arlington, Massachusetts. Okay. You have an interesting background because you worked for Forrester for how many years? I worked for Forrester Research for 20 years. I stopped in 2015. I started in 1995. So you've seen a lot of trends, a lot of tech. And my experience working with larger consulting firms or advisory firms is that they tend to pick their tools. I can remember for years wondering why I had to use Lotus Notes is because that's what the company used. Um, but as an independent, you don't really restrict yourself. In fact, you might have the opposite problem, which is that you have different clients who prefer different tools. So talk a little bit about the challenges or opportunities. Right? Do you get a lot of clients who are pretty much tool agnostic or some that are stuck with one tool, even though you don't think it's the right one? Talk to me about your your process. So I, when I went independent, and most of my work is with authors, some of it is with corporations, um, I decided to use the tools that I was most comfortable with. Um, uh, my mail is Gmail, for example, and um, I, I interact with people a lot on Facebook and uh, on Twitter. And uh, I basically have a series of shared Google folders that I use with people. Um, and of course, other people work different ways. So, so I had to learn to be comfortable with Dropbox for the people who weren't using the shared Google folders. I even have one client who, who ends up sharing stuff on uh, Microsoft, whatever their cloud. OneDrive. It's called OneDrive, yes. Um, and when, when Zoom started to become prevalent, I had one uh, set of authors. It was two executives at a company called Celligent that that I was ghostwriting a book for. And they did video meetings with Zoom. Um, and I began to see just how valuable and useful that was. Um, there were some weird things, like the one guy often had to go on long drive, so he'd have a video meeting with us, and the video was shooting through the steering wheel up at his face. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> don't have a crash here, but, but at least we can have a conversation. Um, so I started contacting people that I got a, a subscription to Zoom and I started using it. Um, and it actually was a differentiator until the coronavirus hit. And then people were like, do we have to use Zoom? Can I just do a phone call? <laughs> like, okay, if you've done 11 Zoom meetings in a day, I understand. The The other challenge has been um, uh, sort of interacting with the tools that people insist on using. So, uh, Give me an example. Yeah. So, uh, here's a here's a weird example. Okay. So I do um, these writing workshops for companies, 
And one of my best clients is Netflix. Um, and so what that means is that I will be on a uh, sort of a seminar, two hour and a half sessions with Netflix with 20 of their people training them in, in how to write better. Uh, and so I started doing that on Zoom and I'm pretty good with Zoom. I know where all the buttons are. I know how to switch things around, you know, show the, uh, the PowerPoint slides that I'm showing and switch to the, uh, to the document they're working on. Um, and then I got this message from them. Okay, we don't think Zoom is secure. Now you have to use uh, um, Google Meet. And in terms of features, it's got all the same features that I was using on Zoom. It's just the buttons are all in different places. So, so there's a certain amount of fumbling around there. Um, I've also used Microsoft Teams with other clients. And I'm like, uh, all right, I may be a little bit clumsy here because I don't write don't know right where everything is. And when it comes to communication, I now have one client who I really like working with who uses Slack. So I have one Slack channel and uh, he posts on Slack and it shows up on my phone and I respond to it and that's fine. And then everyone else I do with email, right? Um, I There's even like, there's one guy who always sends me text messages and I said, I find that intrusive. Stop sending me text messages. So now he sends me an email and then sends me a text message to tell me that he sent me an email. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of picking a lane, right? To your point, it could be Zoom. It could be Teams. Yeah. I'll rip my teeth and it has to be email. But one of the more frustrating things for me is when I've got a client or a partner will send me different messages in different channels and maybe someone's working on this killer app but there is no omni search that looks across all these different walled gardens. Yeah, I am. I, it is, it is a challenge. And I think if you are working in a company, you learn the tools that they use in the company. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear to me that this, this client I have, their whole business runs on Slack and I'm like, okay, I got to accommodate myself to you. And my day is not so crammed full of stuff that I have like, you know, messages coming in from 12 different ways uh, so I can handle it all. But because I generate leads from authors that I worked with off of Facebook, I will often get Facebook direct messages. And when I get a Facebook direct message, that usually means an opportunity for me. And I can't be holding my nose near and saying, oh, I'm not dealing with Facebook to communicate. It has to be Oh, who are you? You know, what's, what are your needs? Let's get on the telephone and find out about it. Um, and you know, that's, you got to live with the way they work because that's the way it is when you're a freelancer. Mm. But eventually you want to move that conversation off Facebook because as you and I both know, they don't exactly have a spotless record on privacy. Uh, well, it's more like I look, I, you may have seen this. I, I wrote about this in, in my book, Writing Without Bullshit, which is that that um, people don't realize that email can be structured in the way any other document can. And so when I communicate with people on email, my email has headings and subheadings in it. It has bullets in it. It has uh, sometimes graphics in it. It has uh, you know links. These things are not that hard to put in, and any email system knows how to do that. Um, and that's a rich, you know, the point of that is to say, all right, here's, 
here's what you ask for, and you can actually look at this email and see all the things you need to know delivered in an efficient way. You're obviously not going to do that if you're you're working on uh, you know Facebook messaging. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we've covered the tools. You can only, I would argue, yeah. collaborate so well with certain tools. Some tools, I would argue, are more inherently collaborative. And even to your point, email, you can write a better email, right? We've all seen horrible emails. Talk to me a little bit about subject near and dear to your heart, writing clearly versus collaboration. I would argue that it's almost impossible to collaborate well if you don't know what the hell the person's saying. Uh, That's certainly true. And the iron imperative in my book is that you must treat the reader's time as more valuable than your own. And that means given the choice between dashing off a quick email that's missing things and is poorly organized and has the most important thing halfway down the page where the person doesn't even notice it, you think, oh, okay, this is either an important person or maybe a bunch of people who take it together are important. Let's see if we can organize this in such a way that it's extremely effective for them to see and respond to. Um, and so... That's it's a question of not reacting instantly in the moment, but actually being thoughtful in how you communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, one of the things that's interesting, I think you mentioned collaboration and clarity of writing. And I am often editing people who are trying to write things clearly with co-authors or collaborators. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is that that process requires a sequential collaboration, not a simultaneous collaboration. So that means you send me a version, I review it, I send it back to you, and don't freaking change it while I'm working on it. Um, And, you know, there are tools like Google Docs that will allow you to work on it simultaneously. But while that feels good, it does not result in a, a written piece that that has the same coherence as when only one person is working on it at a time. So you'd argue one of two things, either disabling the sharing or letting it be view only, or just taking it down, saving it locally from Google Docs to a Word doc. And once you've made your changes, then putting it out there for them to see, because otherwise all hell can break loose. Well, there are ways to get around this by being disciplined. So I've had several authors that work on on Google Docs, but we just had an agreement, and the agreement consists of when you're done, don't mess with it. And oh, by the way, you're going to be getting updates based on the edits I'm making. Don't even look at those edits until I tell you I'm done, because I might put some edits in in the beginning, and then after I see, oh, you actually do this a lot, then I say, all right, I'm not going to mark all of these, or I'm like, oh, okay, no, I see why you did that that way. I withdraw my my conclusion. So you, I haven't really finished editing until I get to the end, and I may have changed some stuff around. I can't do that if you're watching every move I make while I'm making it. So Google Docs is fine to collaborate that way. You just need to to get the hell out of the document while I'm working on it, and then when I'm done, you can come back in and see what the results are. Mm-hmm. And that insistence upon a clear process has served you well because I know you and I have talked privately about yeah my uh, inability to do that at the beginning of a progress that wound up a project that wound up biting me in the ass. I, you know, it's, it's tennis. When the ball's in your court, you deal with it. Then you send it over into the other person's court. And once it, when it's in their court, you can prepare, you can think about it, but you don't go running over to their side of the court and mess around. Um, And 
I, absolutely. I think if you if you look at inefficiency in collaboration, it often comes from a lack of discipline about process. So I always say, you know, this is the way it's going to work. First, you're going to write this, and I'm going to edit it, or you know, you will will work together on these ideas. Then I'll write it up. Then you can go from there. Uh, but you you don't want to have this sort of free for all about everybody tries to do everything at once. I mean, you end up with stuff like uh, doing a detailed copy edit on a paragraph that the other person realizes they're just going to delete. Well, I don't think that's very efficient. (laughs) Now, occasionally, I'm sure you've heard of Hanlon's razor. Uh, Yeah, sure. Right. So to what extent is it when people don't obey your process or the agreed upon process should say, not that it's your process, it's a collaborative one or a joint one. Um, are there times in which you'll say whether it's malice or stupidity doesn't matter. This just isn't working and it's probably time for us to part different part ways. Um, it's never malice. And that's because if I determine that you're behaving in an untrustworthy or dishonest way, then our relationship is over. Um, but, there are often misunderstandings um, and that's something you got to get straight. I, I had one author I was working with who was working some, on some very sophisticated material. And I told him, for example, from a process perspective, that if you're working on a book and you're getting close to the end, you don't make major changes because you introduce errors. And he did not go along with that. He, he continued to make major changes and then the book got published. And then he's like, uh-oh, there's an error in the book. I'm like, you know, I warned you that was going to happen. <laughs> so I most, it's it's funny, people, I'm expensive. So when people hire me, they hire me because I'm exactly the right guy. And there's this amazing thing that happens, which is they actually listen to me and they believe me. Um, I had one author I was working with early in my career. Um, and I had a bunch of very, uh, significant changes that I wanted wanted to make for him. And he was going to go along with all of them. And then at one point he said, do I have to do this? I'm like, it's your book. <laughs> you don't have to do anything I say. But if you behave in a, in a way that sort of connotes authority, then people will often understand and go along with that because you're the expert. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of writing, and I didn't plan on going here, but you yeah. wrote a post, I think last week about the, uh, was it Random House acquiring Penguin and how that actually means, um, quite frankly, more work for people like you? Um, can you oh, talk? Go ahead. Yeah. So it was um, Penguin and Random House merged a while back. Now they're merging with Simon and Schuster. That's right. That's so right. The, this is the number number one and the number three publisher, um, which is a pretty significant consolidation in the book industry, assuming it doesn't run into regulatory problems. But what it means for authors is that they will uh, not only be getting fewer bids on on their books as far as as advances and the like, but a continual reduction in the amount of service that you get from uh, from the publishers. Um, and there's been a decline that's been happening over a period of decades here, where author copies cost more, they don't do as much work on editing, they don't do as much work on publicity. Um, uh, but it's really more and more viable now to to either go through a hybrid publisher, a publisher that works for you, or to self-publish. And I've worked with a bunch of 
of authors who've done that and had uh, successes of that kind of a path. Yeah, it really is a remarkable difference because you go from being a almost a cog in a machine, an important cog, but a cog mm. versus almost the person calling the shots. Again, you can make bad decisions and ignore the advice of people who know what they're talking about. But uh, and to me, the other major benefit is just owning all the intellectual property. I know that with some of my dummies books, I found out that there's been a translation. I go, great. <laughs> and I don't necessarily get paid on that based on the deal that I signed. <laughs> Well, um, I authors think they are the most important thing in a publishing process, which, yeah, they're pretty essential. But from the publisher's point of view, you're important. So is the printer, right? So is the bookstores that they're working with. The uh, the 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 uh, customer of the publisher is not the reader. It's not the author. It's the bookstore because that's who pays them. And so you begin to feel like, you know, you're just, they're going to do what they're going to do. Now, if you're Stephen King or, or Malcolm Gladwell, then you really are a big wheel. But for most authors, you don't get that level of respect. And you're right. If you self-publish or if you hybrid publish, they work for you. And then you become sort of the CEO of the book. Um, and then you have to actually worry about things like, you know, is this really the right cover for it as opposed to letting the publisher take care of that? Yeah, it is funny when in 12, 13 years ago, I didn't yeah. know as much about the makings of the books. I would read them, but I didn't know how the sausage was made. Now that I've written a few, I remember one Amazon review, it was either Slack or Zoom for dummies. And it was something about the fonts. <laughs> I'm thinking, look, you can hate them all you want. I don't get a lot of choice in this matter. Uh, 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 hey, I had people who were complaining that the books were poorly manufactured in some of my books. And I'm like, Honest to God, I had nothing to do with that. I'm sorry the glue fell apart. That's really not my fault. Right, right. We'll get you out of here on this. Um, what book are you currently reading? Um, this is going to seem a little bit obscure, but I actually am, had just finished this really awesome book called Social Media and the Public Interest. Hmm. This is a total geeky book, okay? This is... Uh, the author is a guy named Philip Napoli. He's a, prof a professor in a school of, of uh, pub what is it? School of, of uh, public policy at Duke University. And I am writing an op-ed for the Boston Globe on the topic of how to regulate Facebook so that it doesn't continue to, to divide our country into, into warring camps. Um, and, so I've been trying to gather information everywhere. And this is like everything collected into one place, a total, total compilation. And I go to Amazon and it's only got zero reviews. I wrote the first review and I'm like, okay, this guy deserves to be, be known as a really uh, incredible thinker. So social media and the public interest by Philip Napoli. That's may not be for everybody, but it certainly was what I needed to read. Yeah. I know you're also a fan of, um, uh, Eli Pariser's book, The uh, Filter Bubble. Yes, that's 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 right here too. Right, I was looking at that earlier. I just interviewed him. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I do a lot of research for these things because I uh, I want to be talking about you know know what I'm talking about, and that's that's the instinct that came from working at Forrester Research. You gather as much information as you can because. You're writing about things that really there's no known answer to. So you're going to have to be 
getting all the information you can to create a credible point of view on those things. Good stuff, Josh. Thanks for taking the time. Okay, good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, or subscribe. Merci, gracias, obrigado to the producer of this podcast, podcastedition.com. You guys rock. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.